there, you are listening to the Motherhood Elevated Podcast. I'm your host, Annette Jones, and this is episode number 33, What Are You Afraid Of? You are listening to the Motherhood Elevated Podcast for women who want to find clarity of mind, create lasting emotional well-being and confidence, and achieve amazing potential. Come with me. This will be fun. everyone, welcome to the podcast this week. I'm excited to share some fun stuff with you today. At least I think it's fun. <laughs> and it's overcast and rainy here and I'm just loving it. I'm in my comfy sweater. I let myself indulge in some hot chocolate this morning. So that's a really good day in my book. All right, so I wanted to begin with a little story today. Um, a couple of years ago, my 10-year-old was looking through our shelf of books. His teacher at school had asked everyone to always have a reading book with them. And he was trying to find a chapter book that looked interesting enough for him to commit to. And he had quite the selection to choose from. He's got three older siblings who all really like to read. And there was one book that I knew my older girls had read and loved. It was one of those funny kind of wacky mystery books for kids. And I figured it would be right up his alley. And so as I was telling him what a great book this would be for him to read, his older brother walked by. So I asked him, hey, you read this book, right? Did you like it? Did you think it? Do you think it would be a good one for Ryan to read? And he kind of thought about it for a second. He said, yeah, I started that one when I was like in fourth grade, but I never finished it. I said, well, how come? How come? Did you not think it was very good? And he said, no, it was good, but I got to the end of one of the chapters and there was something scary behind a door or something and I was too afraid to turn the page to see what it was, so I never did. So this intrigued me a little. What was it in this children's book that was so scary that it had kept my son from continuing on with the story. Well, I noticed that there was a bookmark in the book, so I, so I opened, opened it up, and that bookmark was marking the exact place where he had stopped reading four years earlier. And so I looked at the last page of the chapter, and to just set up the situation, there were two kids, a boy and a girl, and they're trying to solve this mystery. And the boy, whose name is Max Ernest, goes into a bathroom. And the girl, whose name is Cass, is waiting outside for him. And the last line of the chapter said, Then she heard two screams. One sounded like Max Ernest. The other sounded like no one. No one human, that is, at all. Ooh, so ominous, right? And that was the sentence that stopped my son in his tracks. That was the line that paralyzed him and kept him from reading the rest of the book. Well, the three of us were sitting there, the suspense just killing us at this point about what was behind that door. Well, I turned the page and started reading, and I will quote for you now. It said, for about a second and a half, Cass stood frozen. Then she ran. When she reached the bathroom, the door was opening and a scrawny old cat darted out. It was the cat, Cass realized with relief, who was the source of that second scream. That was it, a cat. And we all just started laughing. And my son was shocked that he had let his fear of the unknown, what was behind that door on the next page, right? Keep him from reading the rest of the book. And I've thought about this a lot. I actually keep that bookmark in that book at the very end of chapter six as a reminder to myself um, about not to let my fears get the best of me and to keep me from getting out of my comfort zone and progressing because I've done that a lot in my life. I grew up a very shy and insecure girl and there were a lot of things I avoided because of fear. Fear of embarrassment, fear of looking bad, fear of people not liking me, 
fear of criticism, failure, loneliness, the list could go on. But what I've learned and what I can see now looking back on my life is that what I was afraid of wasn't necessarily the thing that might happen. I was actually afraid of the emotion that I would feel if it did. And I think that was the case with my son, right? He wasn't actually in any danger, but his imagination had run wild with all of the possible horrible things that could be on the next page, and it terrified him, an emotion, right? And so he never found out. Well, I guess he found out four years later (laughs) what was behind that door, and that it wasn't at all the scary thing he'd made it up in his mind to be. And it was all because he was afraid of what he would feel when he turned that page. So how often do we do this? How often do we keep ourselves stuck or avoid taking action that we want to take because we are afraid, afraid of failing, afraid of disappointing others or ourselves, afraid of things not going the way we planned, afraid of looking bad or being embarrassed. Sometimes we might even hold back because we're afraid of being successful or that things might actually work out the way we want them to, right? I was coaching a teenage client recently and she was kind of feeling the same thing. She had the opportunity to do something, a a project that she'd never done before, Um, but it was something that she'd always wanted to do. And she was really wrestling with this fear of messing up, of having other people thinking she had failed, of letting herself and other people down. And she just kept coming up with these horrible worst case scenario situations that might happen if she took this on. And we talked about how even if those things happened, she could handle it. She would be able to, with the tools that she was learning, she'd be able to survive these emotions, right? But we also talked about the other possibilities. What if she did an amazing job? What if she actually had a lot of fun? What if um, she felt so accomplished and proud of herself at the end for doing something that she didn't think she could do? And we talked about how the end result wasn't just going to happen to her, right? It's not set in stone. And she had control over how committed she was to this project, how hard she worked, who she went to for help, who she surrounded herself with for support, and how she handled the curveballs and challenges that came up. And she began to see that this wasn't just a matter of the end result just happening to her, that she had the power to decide how she was going to show up for it. And I love what she said to me. Um, She didn't make her decision about whether to take this project on Um, as we were talking, but she did say, I don't want my decision to be based in fear. I don't like that reason, and I want to like my reason for doing it or not doing it. That's so good, so insightful, right? And I shared with her this definition for confidence that I heard when I was first introduced to coaching, and it really got me. And the definition is, confidence is knowing that you can handle any emotion. Let me say that for you again. Confidence is knowing that you can handle any emotion. Think about that. Scientifically, an emotion is just a wave of chemicals, which are triggered by this electrical impulse in our brains, otherwise known as a thought, right? Our emotions are just waves of chemicals that flow through our bodies and cause us to feel physical sensations. That's all they are. But when we are experiencing them, especially very intense ones, they do feel like a big deal, right? And some of them are not super fun to feel. So it's no wonder that we try to resist them or avoid them. But if you can see the emotions for what they are, if you can understand that nothing has gone wrong when you're feeling them, that's when you can gain power over them. There is a really fun TED Talk um, called 100 Days of Rejection. That's just a perfect example of this. 
This man is actually, I found out after doing a little research, a graduate of Brigham Young University, which is kind of funny. Um, and I first heard this talk a few years ago and I had no idea there was a connection there. So I will give you a quick synopsis. If you want to hear the whole story, you'll have to go watch the TED Talk. Just Google 100 days of rejection TED Talk and you should be able to find it pretty easily. But basically this man, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce his name, um, I know I'll butcher it. <laughs> he um, had seen Bill Gates speak to his school in China when he was 14 years old. And after listening to Bill Gates' story, he was convinced that he wanted to start a company that would one day be big enough to buy Microsoft. So he started out very young with this great entrepreneurial dream. And um, that never really left him. He eventually moved to America. He went to college. He got a job. He got married, started a family. But he says just days before his son was born, he quit his job at um, a Fortune 500 company to begin a startup business. And he had had a potential investor approach him about going in on this business with him. And he was absolutely crushed when he got an email saying that the investors were going to pass. And this was just devastating to him. And he wondered if he'd made a terrible mistake. He said he really wanted to just run away from the pain of rejection. But he realized um, that this fear of rejection that he was carrying had been with him ever since he was a kid. And it had come from this traumatic experience that he'd had at school um, when he was six. And so he knew that this kind of fear of rejection was hanging over him and keeping him from, from moving forward in business the way that he wanted to. And so he made this conscious decision that he was going to do something to get past this fear of rejection that was holding him back. But he had no idea where to start. So, of course, he turned to Google and he came across a rejection therapy game that challenged him to a 30-day diet of rejection. So basically, he was supposed to expose himself to rejection in small amounts to get used to the feeling of it. So thinking that the 30 days probably wouldn't be quite enough for him because his case was so bad, he came up with a list of 100 ways that he could put himself in a position where he was pretty much guaranteed to get rejected. And so these tactics range from um, asking to be a Walmart-style greeter at Starbucks to asking a complete stranger for $100 to even, I think he even tried pulling over a cop. And in order to keep himself accountable, he decided that he would film his rejections and post them all on YouTube. And you can actually find them there if you want to go watch them. So his first task, um, the first thing he came up with, he was just decided to ask a mall security officer for $100. And it really felt out of his comfort zone. And when the officer told him no, he said he felt terrified. And he just like kind of ran away, just left right away. He didn't even respond when the officer had asked him why he wanted the money. And he was kind of ashamed that he'd just run away as soon as he felt the sting of rejection come on. He wished that he would have at least stayed and engaged a little bit more with this man. So on day two... Um, his task was to ask a Five Guys employee um, for instead of a drink refill, he asked for a burger refill. And of course, another rejection. But this time he forced himself to stay and even managed to joke a little bit about it with the employee to kind of minimize the discomfort he was feeling. And he felt a little better about that one. So in the space of just 24 hours, he was able to feel a little more control over this emotion, this feeling of rejection. He wasn't reacting to it as much. Now on day three, this is a fun one, he asked a Krispy Kreme employee if 
she could make him donuts in the shape of interlocking Olympic rings. And to his surprise, she agreed. And she even told him that he could have the donuts for free. And it was really cute. She spent a lot of time drawing it out and figuring it all out and, and making them just right. Even found frosting, I think, in the colors. And this totally shocked him that this lady would be so kind as to put all that time and effort into filling his request. And he thought, well, this kind of changes things. I just assumed I would get rejected. And I actually had a really cool experience that showed me how nice people can actually be. And the YouTube video of that rejection actually got over 5 million views and people all over the world started taking interest in this man's goal to overcome his fear of rejection. And so this made him even more excited about this little quest that he'd undertaken. So by the time he had completed all 100 rejection scenarios on his list, he found that about half of his requests had actually been accepted. And he learned a lot about what he could do to maximize his chance of getting a yes. Um, another thing he says he learned was the importance of persistence and not giving up. He says, we are our own worst rejectors. The fear of rejection is far worse than the rejection itself because it stops us from trying things. We assume we always will be rejected and we give up quickly. But he says rejection is a numbers game. If you get through the no's, you'll eventually get your yes. So I love that. Um, he goes on to say people will do anything to avoid rejection, but avoiding rejection doesn't mean you will avoid failure. People who really change the world, who change the way we live and the way we think, were the people who were met with initial and often violent rejection. People like Martin Luther King Jr., Mahatma Gandhi, Nelson Mandela, and even Jesus Christ. These people did not let rejection define them, they let the reaction after rejection define them. So needless to say, this whole experience changed this man's life. He started a company called Wuju Learning. Wuju is a Chinese word meaning fearless. And he says his main goal is to teach others how to battle and take control of their fears. So go find that TED Talk if you're interested. It's a good one. When like the whole family would probably enjoy watching. My kids thought it was pretty fun. And I just think this is such a great example of how it's possible for us to break out of the tendencies we have to be victims to our emotions. So let's talk a little bit about emotions, shall we? I can't remember how much I've touched on this in past episodes, but generally we have two categories that we assign emotions to. We refer to them as either positive or negative, depending on whether or not we like the sensations these emotions are creating in our bodies. But I like to think of them as um, another way. I've, I heard this one time and I loved it. So it put them in categories of survival emotions um, versus elevated emotions. And so elevated emotions are pretty obvious, right? They are the emotions we love to feel. Some examples are happy, joyful, abundant, creative, worthy, peaceful, loving, motivated, inspired. These elevated emotions, what they do is they turn our focus outward. They open us up to each other and to the world around us. They fuel positive action that motivates us to create, to take healthy risks, and to help and connect with other people. Um, I was coaching a teenager this morning and we were actually talking about emotions and how they feel physically inside of us. And I asked her how happy feels to her. And she just said, it feels so good. Like, I just want to go share the happiness with other people. And I love that. I think when we are feeling these elevated emotions, we seek connection and contribution. They are expansive and just feel really wonderful. So no wonder we refer to them as positive, right? <laughs> and so 
On the other side, the survival emotions, they kind of do the opposite. They are emotions like rejection, humiliation, fear, loneliness, um, jealousy, guilt, stress, um, insecurity, anxiety. They're emotions that direct and intensify our focus inwardly onto ourselves. And these survival emotions are designed to, to preserve us and protect us, right? But sometimes they can be a little overprotective. One of the ways I like to um, explain this when I'm teaching it to kids or teens is to relate it to the movie The Croods. So if you're familiar, familiar with that movie, it's a family of cave people who are the last survivors of their kind that they know of, and they live in this world where there are lots and lots of dangers lurking around every corner. Large threatening animals, scarcity of food, natural disasters, just about anything you could think of, it was a threat. So the father of this little clan was over-the-top protective. He was hyper aware and just saw danger in everything. And of course, he just happened to have a very curious, very adventurous teenage daughter who wanted to explore and experience new things. And in his mind, his name is Grug, in Grug's mind, that was the worst thing she could possibly do. And he goes to great lengths to keep her and the rest of the family from experiencing or being exposed to anything that could potentially be dangerous. Basically, he never wanted them to leave the cave. And I love this character because I think Grug is a great example of how that lower survival part of our brain works. It's not bad. In fact, it wants nothing more than to protect us. And sometimes it can overreact a little or a lot, right? And make us think that anything new or challenging or outside of our comfort zone is bad or dangerous. But most of the time, what our brain is actually afraid of is the emotion we might feel, right? And so it's the job of our higher brain to realize what's happening, to see that warning signal of fear for what it is, and then decide intentionally if we want to move forward, even if we might experience an emotion we don't love. So being willing to feel all of our emotions, even the messy, difficult ones, is really the key to thriving and resilience and happiness. But we have to go a little bit farther than just being aware of or accepting our emotions. We need to be sure that we're labeling them accurately. We often use kind of generic labels to describe our feelings. We'll throw words around like stress or anxiety or overwhelm, but there's a difference between feeling anxious because you're nervous about giving a talk in church and feeling anxious because you're worried about the choices your child is making, right? We use these kind of blanket emotions to describe a whole range of possible things we could be feeling. And I think anxious seems to be kind of the go-to word nowadays to describe a lot of uncomfortable emotions that we feel. But when we learn how to really label our emotions accurately, we can more quickly and more easily get to the root cause of what's really going on for us. And those survival emotions can serve an important purpose, right? They can serve as data to inform us about potential problems that we might want to pay attention to or take action on. I really love this thought from psychologist Susan David. She said, our emotions contain flashing lights to things that we care about. We tend not to feel strong emotion to stuff that doesn't mean anything in our worlds. If you feel rage when you read the news, that rage is a signpost perhaps that you value equity and fairness. And it's an opportunity to take active steps to shape your life in that direction. When we are open to the difficult emotions, we are able to generate responses that are values aligned. She goes on to say, emotions are data, they are not directives. We own our emotions, they don't own us. When you feel a strong, tough emotion, don't race for the emotional exits. Learn its contours, show up to the journal of your hearts. Ask yourself, what is my emotion telling me? 
Which action will bring me towards my values? Which will take me away from my values? She says, emotional agility is the ability to be with your emotions with curiosity, compassion, and especially the courage to take values-connected steps. And that's so powerful, right? That our emotions are data that can help us understand what's important to us, what our values are, and how to take positive action in the world. So I just love that. Okay, here are just a few reminders I have for you when you're feeling an emotion that you don't love. Um, Number one, this feeling is being created in your mind with your thoughts. And just because you can't necessarily identify the exact thought, that's okay. Just knowing that the feeling isn't being controlled by something outside of you can help you get some leverage over it. Um, Number two, remember that feelings are one, universal, and two, temporary. Um, Every human experiences them, and they don't last forever. Number three, it's okay. Just because you're feeling an uncomfortable emotion doesn't mean you have to change it. Sometimes we want to keep a thought or feeling that we would label as a negative, right? You get to decide what serves you in the moment and choose what you want to feel. And number four, you can handle any emotion. An emotion is just a vibration within your body and uncomfortable emotions have a purpose. They are part of being human. You can embrace the discomfort and allow yourself to process and feel that emotion. And if you want to learn more about processing emotions, you can go back and listen to a couple of different episodes. I believe number four is called Own Your Emotions and number 25, which is Don't Believe Everything You Feel. And those episodes go into more depth on on processing emotions and things like that. So to end, I want to share with you um, a little experience from Sister Sherry Dew, if you're familiar with her. She's just one of my favorites. And she shared this story in her book, No One Can Take Your Place. And I came across this story years ago, and it really had a huge impact on me, probably because I could relate to her experience so much. So as you listen, pay attention to what it triggers in you and how this principle might be showing up for you in your own life. Okay, here we go. So Sister Dew talks about being an extremely shy insecure college freshman whose dream was to play for the BYU women's basketball team. She'd played in high school and this had always been her dream. Um, And when the appointed day for tryouts came, she showed up at the designated gym and as she opened the door, she found a group of girls already running drills and she said they were really good. And all of a sudden she panicked and she thought to herself, what are you thinking? You aren't good enough to play ball here. You can't compete with these girls. What has gotten into your head? So she quickly closed the door and decided to give herself a few minutes to regain her composure. And she just started pacing outside the gym. And she said those few minutes turned into three hours. And before she knew it, the tryouts were over. Sister Dew said she never got up the courage to go into the gym and that she was disgusted with herself. And the experience had nagged at her ever since. She said that for 30 years, she wasn't able to watch a women's collegiate basketball game without kind of wincing, all the while wondering if she could have made that team. Well, 30 years after those fall tryouts, she was asked to speak um, to all of the female athletes at BYU, where she told this story for the very first time. And she shared this experience with them because she said she wanted those girls to know how much she admired and respected what they'd accomplished. And I'm going to read the rest of the account in her own words. She said, when I had concluded, BYU's storied women's athletic director, Dr. Elaine Michaelis, 
went to the podium and in front of the audience asked, Sherry, is that story about you being too shy to try out for the 1971 basketball team really true? Yes, I responded. Did you know that I was the coach of the 1971 BYU women's basketball team? She continued. Yes, I answered, adding that through all these years, her name had been emblazoned in my mind and I had followed with great interest the very successful basketball and volleyball teams she had coached. Would you like to know something interesting about my 1971 basketball team? She went on. I nodded that I would. In all my years of coaching, it is the only year I was not able to fill my roster, and we played that season one player short. All season, I kept searching for one more girl to fill out our team, but I could never find her. Sherry Dew goes on to say, uh, When she said those words, I felt as though she had sucker punched me. I couldn't believe it was true, but Elaine later assured me that it was. She had looked all season long for another player to add to her roster, but she had never been able to find that one particular ball player. All the way home, I stewed about what she had said, and frankly, I've thought and pondered the matter a great deal since then. Though I suppose I won't know this definitively until I step across the veil and understand the many, many things more clearly, I have a suspicion about all of this. I have the feeling that that spot on that team was mine, but because I didn't even have the courage to step forward and try, it didn't get filled. Here is the principle that my sorry brush with the 1971 BYU women's basketball team has taught me. No one can take your place. Oh, that story just gets me every time. In fact, I had to read it through several times before I recording this so I could desensitize myself a little. It literally gets my tears going. And I think um, it makes me so emotional because I can relate to this so much. I've shared before on this podcast how painfully shy I was when I was young and how I avoided so many things because I was too afraid. I was afraid of looking dumb, of messing up, of disappointing people, of being rejected. And this really kept me from taking healthy risks and really living my life. So I guess my takeaway for you today is don't be afraid of your emotions. Don't let them keep you from living the life you want to live. Your emotions, whether they are comfortable or uncomfortable or or horrible, (laughs) the fact that you have them means that you're alive. Um, I will leave you with this quote, another one from Dr. Susan David. She said, I've had hundreds of people tell me what they don't want to feel. They say things like, I don't want to try because I don't want to feel disappointed, or I just want this feeling to go away. She says, tough emotions are part of our contract with life. You don't get to have a meaningful career or raise a family or leave the world a better place without stress and discomfort. Discomfort is the price of admission to a meaningful life. And I think that's a great note to end on. (laughs) As always, if you have questions or would like to dive deeper into the tools and concepts you're learning here, here, feel free to contact me. Um, My email is annette.motherhoodelevated at gmail.com or you can find me on Instagram at annettejonescoaching. And I love hearing from you. All right, I hope you have a great week and I will see you back again here soon.